Welcome back to the Four Brothers of World War II podcast. This is episode three, entitled Personal Memoirs of World War II, Staff Sergeant Raymond M. Quant, 36989544, which I have to assume was his Army serial number. Part one. One year in wartime, June 22, 1944 through May 8, 1945. August 12, 1997, 52 years after the closing of the Second World War, I have decided to commit to paper some of my personal recollections from those days in uniform. I had been wearing U.S. Army clothing for exactly two years. My first government issue, GI, came at Fort Sheridan, Illinois on June 22, 1944, and I continued wearing khaki until June 25, 1946. Because of the unusual and rapidly moving events of those years, I often wished that I could have kept a diary of the happenings upon the military services as a possible security risk. Overseas correspondence was always censored for quote-unquote sensitive information of possible use to the enemy. My main quote-unquote weapon of warfare was the typewriter. I thought many times that I would like to have carbon copies of the various reports that I type daily. Since almost every piece of paper in the 3rd Army headquarters was classified as restricted, confidential, secret, or top secret. There was little chance of that. Later, majoring in history at the University of Wisconsin, I was able to study up-to-date courses in World War II and modern Europe. 38 years, I gradually concluded that time marches on and that people were now thinking about other things. But in spite of extensive TV reruns of old Hollywood war films and newsreels, it seems a strong interest still exists. Army reunions are strong reminders that veterans, like everyone else, do grow old and die. And certainly, the time for personal interviews of actual participants is rapidly running out. I was just 18 years old in 1944, which places me in the category of the youngest in the military during the conflict. Also, I remained on the scene in Germany for what was, in many ways, the most varied and unusual time, the Allied military occupation and denazification of Germany. Induction, June 22, 1944. Fort Sheridan, Illinois, was used to outfit new inductees from Wisconsin and assign them to specific units for basic training. A battery of tests and interviews dealing with mental abilities and background knowledge was administered. There were special Army versions of IQ tests familiar to all high school graduates. Two lucky breaks for me came when one type of mental acuteness was tested by using series of army code dots and dashes. Directions were to listen to two sequences of sounds and then indicate whether they were the same or different. That required a certain amount of alertness and concentration. 
In my senior year in high school, I had learned all the radio code letters so that I merely had to listen for familiar letters. I learned later I scored a perfect record. The typing test was also easy. There were very few inductees taking this test. It amounted to typing easy sentences of short familiar words. The typing manual was the same one that I had used in high school. Further, no deductions were made for errors. I was given a classification of 405, clerk typist, and assigned to the field artillery for basic training in California. My father, Elmer Ellsworth Quant, served in the field artillery in Europe during the First World War, 86th Black Hawk Division, and I knew the field artillery march from old Edison phonograph records and his singing along with the music. The Western Trek The troop train to California was slow, five days, and tiring. Actually, the quote-unquote train was a series of passenger cars plus an army dining car and kitchen. It had no engine. Train traffic was extremely heavy wherever there was space. After two days out from Chicago, the train pulled into the Kansas City Terminal and we were allowed our first chance to climb off. I recall running up and down the stairs in the station for badly needed exercise. Those wide staircases are still a vivid memory. Our entire day was spent in Colorado, traveling up and down mountains and sidetracking for express trains. At dark, we were parked on a siding somewhere in the central part of the state. Then we moved south and parked again. I woke up about 2 a.m., looked out, and saw the depot sign that identified the town as La Junta. My brother Burton was stationed at the Air Force Base at that time, and I immediately inquired if there was any way I could call him. No luck. The sergeant in charge said that I could not be allowed to leave the train because there was no way of knowing when we would start off again. I sat there looking out at the tracks for about two hours, after which the train suddenly lurched into motion. In spite of being just a short distance from Bert, I did not see him. He had left our home in New London the day after the Pearl Harbor attack to return to his military base, and I did not see him again until the autumn of 1946 at the University in Madison, Wisconsin. In Utah, the tracks extended out over portions of the Great Salt Lake. We crossed, being able to look out on both sides and see nothing but water and heavy salt deposits for miles. In Nevada, the train tracks ran parallel to the main street of Reno, only one block away. The same was true in San Francisco, along Market Street. We went through on July 4th and saw women wearing fur coats on the downtown sidewalks. Basic Training, Camp Roberts, California, July through November, 1944. Camp Roberts is located in Central California between San Francisco and Los Angeles. 
The closest towns are San Miguel and the Paso Robles. The field artillery portion of the camp was only about one-fourth of the entire area. The infantry had the greater part. Directly in front of my barracks was a very large infantry training field. Each day we were able to compare activities and observe how much easier our life was. Red Skelton, the radio and later TV comedian, was assigned to my outfit and for a brief time was housed just two buildings away. He entered the service as an enlisted man and began his basic training here in field artillery. He was 31 years old at the time. He tried hard to keep up, but the physical exertion was too much for him. I doubt if he was very strong physically. He dropped out on the hikes with the field pack, and calisthenics left him immobilized on the ground. He was soon transferred to special services where he worked with show groups from Hollywood to put on entertainment for military personnel time. Wherever he was, he was creating some comic character or working on goofy facial expressions. As I write this in 1997, news of his death at age 84 has just been announced. Red Skelton performed in several vaudeville-type shows at Camp Roberts using comic material, which later was included in films and on television. Our first six weeks of training was largely physical, close-order drill, calisthenics, and hikes. Then, six weeks of indoor classes, learning army forms were studied with attention given to exactly where and how each word was to be entered. Records required the use of special army abbreviations and spellings. No variations were acceptable. Military records had to be absolutely accurate and precise for later use by various government departments. Added to this was weapons training with carbine anti-tank rockets and finally 105mm howitzers. Use of the gas mask, locating and disarming booby traps and landmines, and the firing of various automatic weapons was taught. Special training films and demonstrations made learning much easier. In this respect, the military was far ahead of education technique and procedures being used in public schools at the time. The final weeks included an elaborate, quote-unquote, in-the-field operation at Hunter Liggett, a remote ranch area once owned by William Randolph Hearst and near his Sam Simeon Castle. My first and only experience with coyotes came on guard duty at night near a road leading into the camping area. Two of us were assigned to stop all traffic and check identifications. The night air was cold. A small fire had been built by the previous guards, and we kept it going from scraps of wood and fallen branches. Before long, we could hear coyotes on the plains howling, as they did in the old western films. Except this time, we saw them creeping up to enjoy the warmth. Their eyes glowed with the flames and gave an eerie look to the entire scene. 
obviously, we were not going to fall asleep on guard duty with this going on. It was a tiring night. The sound did not halt until the sky began to get light. Later, I thought the coyotes were probably as frightened of us out there as we were of them. Basic training ended in November 1944, and a 10-day furlough was granted for a home visit stretching over Armistice Day, November 11th. Travel coaches had gasoline lanterns dangling from the ceiling. In Chicago, both coming from California and going to Maryland, my sister Lucille was at the station to greet me. She had a long wait both times, but was standing by the tracks when I came through. Fort Meade and Camp Miles Standish, December 1944. Fort Meade training, about three weeks, was much harder than Camp Roberts. Weather in Maryland was cold and rainy all the time. On the infiltration course, we were allowed to start by lying down in the mud in front of the starting trenches because they were already filled with a foot of water. It took days to clean off the mud. By the end of the three weeks, we were quite sure we would be heading overseas to Europe, but no information was given out. Five days before Christmas, we were put on a troop train which headed north. We naturally thought it would end in New York, but not so. We continued on to Boston and were trucked out to a secret makeshift camp named Miles Standish. I was able to call home from Boston on Christmas Eve. Lyle, aka Dodd, had just returned from three years in the Pacific, but I missed speaking to him. More training. Then a day or so after Christmas, we boarded a transport in Boston Harbor. The Thomas H. Berry was a made-over cruise ship which joined a large convoy crossing the North Atlantic and heading for France. Even here, we were not told where we were going. The Atlantic Convoy, December 1944 through January 1945. The Atlantic crossing was long, 13 days, and cold. The convoy moved along slowly because of the oil freighters. However, when a submarine alert was sounded, the ring of destroyers moved out in a hurry. The troop ship, centered in the convoy, was very heavily loaded. My canvas hammock was attached to pipes on an inner deck with makeshift windbreaks around it. The cots were stacked four high on both sides of a heavy pipe support. The real measure of crowdedness was the limit of two meals per day. The mess lines took two to three hours of standing to get to the mess hall. It took from 7 a.m. until noon and from 1 p.m. until 6 to feed everyone. I suspect that carrying enough bulky food to provide three meals would have been difficult. And there was certainly no place in the North Atlantic to stop and get any more. Abandoned ship drills revealed to us that the lifeboats on board 
were for officers only. Again, lack of space. We had only bulky Kapok life vests, also called May Wests, to keep us afloat. Fortunately, they were never needed. Total blackout was enforced throughout the voyage. Any light, including cigarettes, could be seen for miles in the dark. Every exit was wired to cut off all current whenever the door was opened. The electric circuit was not completed unless the door was tightly closed. No smoking on deck was allowed, and no dropping of cigarette butts in the water. They floated, leaving a telltale trail on the ocean surface. Northern France, La Havre to Metz, January 1945. As in all other phases of my life, no explanations were ever made concerning why something was done or what could be coming next. As the water became shallow and choppy in places, rumors began circulating that we were in the English Channel. The only way that we had heard of troops reaching France was via Omaha or Utah beaches in Normandy. Everyone started imagining how we would be scrambling over the side of the ship to reach the beaches. Instead, the ship glided smoothly into the French harbor of Le Havre and was tied securely to the dock. We were alerted to have all our belongings packed and on our backs prepared to move out. We walked on a gangplank, down a stairs, and climbed onto one of a convoy of army trucks that drove us out of the city without stopping. No sightseeing this time. We went directly north to the Belgium border and stopped at the small French town of Givet. We hiked to a farmhouse and bedded down in a barn. The loose hay was quite comfortable compared to some of the other recent sleeping facilities. The next morning, soon after breakfast, the incoming troops were divided into two groups. My group loaded onto a French 48 boxcar. I believe the 40 men and 8 horses would have had more room than we did packed in from wall to wall, standing room only. These conditions lasted for four days on a trip that one could drive today in a few hours. The many delays were from halting for track repairs or detouring around a damaged bridge. We survived on Army K rations and little or no sleep, depending on whether you could lean on others. The train came to a final halt about 10 miles outside the French city of Metz. There was no bridge for the train to proceed into the city. We disembarked and waited in this snow until trucks came to pick up the heavy gear. We then proceeded into Metz on foot. Our walking contingent reached the replacement depot in Metz about 5 p.m. We ate our first hot meal in days and fell asleep on the wood floor in an old school building. I was very tired, both from the long ride and the hike through the snow. I dozed off quickly.
Then in a deep sleep, I felt one of my buddies shake me and call, Hey, Quant, wake up! Somebody here knows you! Since someone in Metz, France, knowing me was impossible, I did not move. But now several guys were yelling, and there was more shaking. I sat up, opened my eyes, and heard, Ray Quant! It's Bill Brown, your neighbor, in New London. As I tried to get my mind cleared, he explained that he saw my name on a list of new arrivals, and he was typing, so he came right over to check. Then he broke the good news that I still was not prepared to fully comprehend. Bill said he typed my name on a roster of six men who were assigned the 3rd Army Headquarters. I was to leave early the next morning for Luxembourg. Bill was a corporal at the time and had been transferred to temporary duty in Metz for arrest after a number of military engagements, night duty, but would return after the midnight shift was completed. Many of the other guys crowded around and tried to find out what their orders were. But Bill said he couldn't remember names, just that there were six leaving early the next day. The following morning, a weapons carrier drove up to the entrance. Six of us climbed in, and the vehicle headed north. The first thing I noticed was how strange it felt to be with only five soldiers plus a driver. All of Army training and travel so far had been carried out in very large groups, thousands aboard ship, several hundred on the train. The trip was quite short, ending in the small town of Etch-sur-Alzette, Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. Luxembourg, January through March, 1945. The first thing evident in the town of Esch was the large number of portraits of Grand Duchess Charlotte displayed in windows of homes and stores. Each was serving as the temporary headquarters of 3rd Army Rear Section. Because of the large number of headquarters offices, much space was required. The Rear Section offices dealt with backup services. I began work in the War Report Office, which was preparing the permanent history of Army operations to be photocopied and then become part of the permanent files of the U.S. War Department in Washington, D.C. I was puzzled at first why I was typing detailed battle accounts of military action, which took place just after D-Day in June and July of 1944, when it was now January 1945. I learned that this low-priority work was interrupted during the German breakthrough and the office personnel transferred to the front lines to replace combat troops. Now that things had eased up a bit, my job was to help bring the work up to date. Photocopying at this time meant typing the information on a specially treated paper that would photograph well. A big problem was that no erasing could be done because it would show up as a gray smear on the final record. 
a full legal-sized sheet of copy had to be completed without a single error. A mistake meant beginning again, which did happen a number of times. Eventually, I hit my stride and could complete an entire page in about an hour. The geographic names of battlegrounds in northern France, Ken, St. Lo, Cherbourg, are still etched in my brain. These reports are now stored in the Department of Defense archives and are used for research and study by military planners and instructors. In 1992, a book by Charles M. Province titled Patton's Third Army, A Chronology was published by Hippocrene Books, New York. I bought a copy because I wanted a good record of the activities I recalled. As I began to read, I suddenly felt that this was very familiar stuff. In fact, it was familiar right down to the actual wording. As I read on, I realized that I was reading summaries of these very same War Department daily reports that I had typed in 1945. Now all the secret materials are public record. After about three weeks, the rear sections of the headquarters moved to Luxembourg City to join the forward departments. Now I was able to settle in one place until March 27, 1945. The War Report Office was interesting for several reasons. First, being able to follow a very detailed account of the military campaign across France appealed to my interest in history. And second, because of this nerve-wracking job of typing without error, the sergeant in charge, Staff Sergeant Harris, tried to keep the tension down by treating us like talented artists instead of lowly recruits. One Sunday afternoon, he had to travel into the city to get supplies. He asked me to take a break and come along. In town, he parked the jeep and we hiked down into the deep valley of the Alzette River in Luxembourg. He had a camera with one roll of film, very hard to obtain, which he used up on this trip to get snapshots to send home to his wife. He also took a number of shots of me in this setting, in the valley, and in a nearby rural village. I still have them and prize them highly. When this work was up to date, the War Report Office was closed down again, and I was transferred to the G2 intelligence section as part of quote-unquote Lucky Forward, code name for Third Army Headquarters. G2 is one of the five general staff offices, G1 personnel, G3 U.S. troop strategies, G4 supply and transportation, G5 refugees and government. G2 deals with collecting and distributing vital information regarding enemy troops, weapons, strategies, and current strength of military forces, both in numbers and firepower. This information 
is collected daily through various means, combined and duplicated in a daily report provided to every fighting unit in the Army to aid in mapping strategies. Information came in regularly from all military units in the area by phone, TWX telegraph, and letters. We served as the central clearinghouse. General Patton was briefed daily on the enemy situation. Work in G2 was organized into two shifts of 12 hours each. Typing was done on blue gelatin stencils and then duplicated on a mimeograph. Important correspondence was done on plain paper with up to six to seven carbon copies made. Nothing was ever done by single copy. All documents were secret. The city of Luxembourg did not sustain much visual damage in spite of being crossed by German armies three times and by the U.S. Third Army once. The headquarters was housed in a large retirement home. Officers stayed in small rooming houses and enlisted men in a school building about six blocks away. It was a reasonably secure existence until the night of March 11, 1945. Allied bombers had been carrying out numerous raids on German targets, and the front lines had moved well within the German homeland by March. However, to everyone's surprise, heavy German shelling of Luxembourg began after dark and continued until late in the night. The mystery was, where were the shells coming from? The headquarters building received a direct hit on the left wing where G2 section occupied the second floor. General Patton's office was at the opposite end of the building. The G1 section on the first floor received the most damage with all rooms wrecked and two men killed. When my shift reported at 7 a.m., we saw a huge bomb crater just outside the wall and all the windows were broken. Plaster and stone were lying everywhere. One of our group, Charlie Martin, who had been working close to one of the smashed windows, came crawling out into the hall, clutching his portable typewriter to his chest. When others asked him why he stopped to get the typewriter, instead of just getting out fast, he replied, If anything happens to this typewriter, I get sent to the front. We later learned that the Germans had been able to conceal a large railroad gun under an Autobahn bridge, out of sight of U.S. planes. General Eisenhower visited the headquarters the following day and posed for pictures with General Patton at the entry gate. Germany, the Rhine to Bavaria, March through May 1945. Headquarters made its first move into Germany. This was a massive operation. Everything was packed the night before, and at dawn, a procession of two and a half and ten ton trucks began rolling up to remove equipment and records. The new site was Idar Oberstein. I was instructed to stay behind with one officer to handle all department business coming over the phone during the move. When the equipment reached the new position, 
and the phones were working, we would receive a call which would serve as the signal for us to leave. My final job was to examine every desk, wastebasket, and closet to see that no classified documents had been left behind. All waste had to be burned. I was there until late afternoon when the call came through. With that, the officer in charge, Captain Tom Kritzer, signaled for the Jeep and driver who had stayed behind. Captain Kritzer sat in front and I got in the back to bounce around with vital files held on my lap. My personal belongings had left by truck during the morning departure. It was a very creepy feeling to approach the German border in wartime with the sun going down. This was not a large armed convoy, nor a contingent of troops. It was just one jeep with three men alone, carrying vital records, approaching the German city of Trier. For the first time, I saw hostile German faces in the bomb streets and wrecked buildings that could hold snipers waiting for revenge. We arrived at the headquarters building in Idar Oberstein about 8 p.m. with everything intact. From here until the end of the war, our headquarters operated in old German army buildings, Kasern, in poor condition with none of the amenities we all got to enjoy in Luxembourg. The next move to Frankfurt on April 3rd included the difficult Rhine crossing at Mainz. As the U.S. ground troops reached the Rhine, the planners were preparing for a long, difficult crossing of almost defenseless troops paddling in the swift current of a wide river while being shelled by Germans from the East Bank. But by luck, when the Remagen Bridge failed to collapse from German explosives north of us, the way was cleared for an earlier fight for the East Shore. By April, the Army engineers had built several crossing points by constructing floating bridges by wide planks lashed to small boats. These were held together by wire cable and during use were actually steadied by troops holding on to extra cables with their gloved hands to keep the boats from taking off downstream in the swift current. Very sore arms and fingers must have resulted. Being on the last shift again, I crossed in a jeep, which fit on the narrow plank paths better than a 10-ton truck. I felt very fortunate. The Corps of Engineers were the great heroes of that day. Frankfurt is the largest city in western Germany, and it looked like the most devastated. Street after street had piles of rubble, and no building still had four complete walls. Open spaces were visible across every block where apartment buildings had stood not long before. The oddest thing I spotted was a real tribute to some German plumber. An eight-story building had been completely demolished, 
all walls down, but they're still attached to the pipes rising up eight stories from the ground was a bathroom hanging out in space. In a basement of rubble, a few days later, I ran across a book. It attracted my attention because a German bayonet had been driven through the entire volume. It was a German printing of Hitler's Mein Kampf. There is an interesting story here, I thought, but one I will never know. Moving became more frequent. Bad Harsfeld, April 11th, Erlangen, duty. As part of a number of quote-unquote desperation acts by Germans as the war wound down, Otto Skorzeny, an infamous SS officer and skilled Nazi terrorist, had organized a number of assassination plans to be carried out against the various Allied leaders. Skorzeny was the type of man who gets featured in thriller movies. He had a long scar running down his right cheek from a dueling sword. During the German breakthrough in late 1944, he outfitted men in U.S. Army uniforms so they could infiltrate American military installations. Also, they posed as military police and stood at traffic intersections near the front lines, directing U.S. tanks the wrong way into the dead-end swamps and empty fields. The U.S. Army campaigned to capture Skorzeny. His picture was posted everywhere as the most wanted man in Europe, but with no success. Interviewed in 1970 by a British author reporting on the Martin Bormann investigation, Charles Whiting, The Hunt for Martin Bormann, Pen and Sword, Paperback, page 111. Rumors had been heard that General Patton was on the list of Skorzeny victims, so not taking any chances, extra guards were placed around his villa outside of town every night. When extra duty was to be assigned, it always went to the youngest and newest arrival. In the G2 section, that meant me. I finished my reports by 7 p.m. and was driven to the villa, where I was assigned a beat that covered the driveway along a hillside. As I walked back and forth, it was very dark and almost impossible to see anything on the ground. But in the air, U.S. bombers were strafing German Army truck convoys on the Autobahn directly below the hill. Tracer bullets were being used and flares lit up the roadway. From that light, I could see that there were so many troops guarding Patton's hillside that if anyone had to shoot, the bullet would have had to pass through a number of Americans before it could ever reach an intruder. The night ended quietly. When I returned to the headquarters building, I heard the news that President Franklin Roosevelt had died, April 12th, in Warm Springs, Georgia, and that Harry Truman was now president. In Regensburg on May 6th, more news came through. This time, 
the greatest news of all. The Germans had surrendered unconditionally. The next morning, our periodic report was decorated with a special cover drawn by one of the draftsmen announcing the end of a war with the victory rocket bursting out of the page. All was completed when we learned abruptly that no military unit would be allowed to put out the news until it was officially released by the Allied heads of state. British Prime Minister Clement Attlee was given the honor of announcing the victory first. So we had to remove the innovative cover and put out the usual until the right signal came. That, of course, was May 8th. I recall several drinking binges that night for those with liquor, usually just officers, and the great relief felt when we could rip down the shabby blackout drapes and open the windows for fresh air. That was the real celebration for me. The quick moves from Bad Hersfeld to Erlangen to Regensburg as the war wound down indicates a sharp change in direction of Third Army forces. Whereas we had been heading directly east across Germany into Bavaria, the Czech border was as far east as we went. Deep into Bavaria to the south, our troops moved toward Austria, bringing them through Hitler's mountain retreat in Berchtesgaden and into Salzburg. During this switch in direction, G2 section prepared a battle plan for the Austrian Redoubt, which was a mountainous region where fanatical German forces might plan to hole up and resist surrender for a long time. The detailed invasion plan included geographic characteristics, travel routes and road conditions, population centers, and many other facts useful in an extended invasion campaign. This information was classified top secret and typed on blue gelatin mimeograph stencils. Then instead of running them off for copies, the stencils were fastened together, wrapped in brown paper, and placed in a large wooden chest with a padlock for storage. With the surrender on May 8th, these stencils, about five days' work, were never used. Even in wartime, some things end well. At this point in his story, Raymond Quant pauses to post an article from the Wisconsin State Journal entitled VE Day! which of course stands for Victory in Europe Day. Just a few paragraphs from that article before he continues on with his story. Even before the announcement, many people knew victory was at hand, including Raymond Quant of Madison. Quant then was a 19-year-old private assigned to type daily records at the headquarters of the U.S. Third Army, Intelligence Section G2. On May 6th, we received the news that a German surrender had taken place and the war was about to end. One of our map draftsmen decided to observe the occasion with an elaborate cover for the daily report sent to all unit commanders, showing a huge rocket bursting out 
of the paper with the word VICTORY in all capital letters underneath. The report was completely assembled by 7 a.m. when we learned that the surrender was not to be announced by any military unit until each allied country's political leader had made it official. So from 7 a.m. until 9 a.m., we had to remove and save our creative cover for two days. That same day, Quant, as in Ray, was assigned temporarily to handle the telephone messages to the G2's office. The G2 colonel, Oscar W. Koch, sat in a planning conference with two more colonels and a brigadier general, and I was instructed that they were not to be disturbed. About a half hour into his assignment, Quant took an important call. When I picked up the phone receiver, I heard, This is General Patton. Tell Colonel Koch I want to see him right away. I jumped up, opened the conference door, and said quickly, Sir, General Patton wishes to see you immediately. By the time I got through the name General Patton, four high-ranking officers had jumped up and scurried out. I have never known my words to have such power. <laughs>